The Kindness Podcast is made possible by Cornwell Properties in Athens, Ohio. Cornwell Properties offers Ohio University students the best locations to live in Athens. All of their apartments are either on Court Street or within one block. Cornwell Properties. Location matters. Visit their website, cornwellpropertiesathens.com, for more information. Welcome to the Kindness Podcast. I'm Nicole Phillips. There's a beautiful concept in Judaism called tikkun olam. It represents the idea that acts of kindness can be used to repair our world. Avram Rosenzweig is the living embodiment of that idea. He's the founder of Toronto's thriving Jewish humanitarian organization, The Ahavta, and host of the Hat Radio podcast. As I was doing some some researching on you and, and trying to look you up, you have your own Wikipedia page. I thought that was pretty, pretty fancy, sir. But, yeah, thanks a lot. <laughs> yeah. The one thing that was really interesting, though, is they mentioned right off the bat that you are a rabbi's son. How Correct. was being raised as a rabbi's son really influential to you? Well, it, it was enormous. I mean, the culture in our home was that of a rabbinical one, <laughs> which means that we were religious, we were surrounded by books, many of which were Jewish, we were surrounded by Jewish culture, um, and being that my father was a rabbi and my mother a rabbitson, you know, there was a lot of outreach and inreach, and um, it, it, the effect was huge, it was enormous. So some people who are raised in homes like that, go the other way. Instead of being um, people who also outreach, they are people who say, oh my gosh, you know, I can't even, this has been force fed on me since day one. Why didn't you go that route with it? Well, the truth is I did go that route. I've gone many routes. Um, I was religious Orthodox until I was about 20 years old. And then I gave that up. Uh, Now I'm 59 and I haven't gone back to Orthodoxy. So in terms of my day-to-day adherence, it's changed dramatically, and it's really been focused on tikkun olam, which is repairing the world, kindness, as opposed to ritual. Um, and as far as um, the, um, the outreach and the inreach, I did a lot of that. You know, I started an organization called Via Havda, and that was a Jewish humanitarian organization where basically our, our uh, vision, our mission statement was to help anybody who was in need as, as best as we could. And uh, I stepped down as CEO two years ago because I'd done it for so many years and I was very, very tired and depleted. And now really I am uh, really taking care of my, myself much more so. Uh, I'm not doing very much for the world in terms of on the ground, but I am through my podcast. So I'm trying to put out kind words there. And I'm raising a 13-year-old son and I'm trying to raise him you know, in an environment of kindness as well. So I do actually, I I have changed over the years and I'm trying out different things. Mm -hmm. So a 13 year old son, Mm -hmm. I have, uh, I have one of those too. (laughs) Yeah. You know what they're like. I do. I do. And there are days when I feel like he absolutely buys into this idea of kindness being powerful. And then there are days when I feel like he is, he's not believing or he's not hearing or he's not something. So what does that look like in your household? How do you, um, how do you engage those sorts of conversations with your child? 
Well, firstly, I, I you know I listen very very closely to him to see what he's saying and where he's coming from, and when he and I are together. You know, he's, you know, your classic 13-year-old where very much of it is me, me, me. But I'm okay with that because he's developing his own sense of individuality, and I think he's doing it really well. But by the same token, when he and I go out and there's a door to open for somebody else, he will open it and let them go through first. Um, if somebody is in need in one way or the other across the street at the supermarket, if he can help, he will. Um, if I ask him to put himself out, for an elderly person in our building, you know, he'll hem and haw, but ultimately he'll do it, and and he'll be good at it. So I look at the core of who he is, and I ask myself, because I think everybody has a core, and sometimes it's well hidden, but I ask myself, is he a good boy? Is he a good person? Is he sensitive? Is he empathetic? And my, and my answers to all those questions are yes, he is. Does he necessarily practice them as much as I do or as much as I'd want him to? No, but again, when I examine it, I say that's okay because he's 13 and he really, really does need to focus on himself in a big way. That's a really good point. I love the idea of listening to him, but also understanding that he's in a, he's in a pattern of growth. Like when I was 13, I would not want people to judge who I am now based on who I was when I was 13. That would be... Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of that. Grossly unfair. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. So your podcast right. is called, is it Hat Radio? Is it, is it, it's spelled that way. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So it's called Hat Radio, H-A-T as in wearing a hat radio. And the reason I called it that was because I had to name it something at a certain point. You know how that goes. Like, someone, <laughs> you know, the, you know, I'm glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah. You know, the registry is saying, okay, what's the name of your company? So there was a hat sitting on my table and I said, okay, I'll call it hat radio. <laughs> I love it. Perfect. But you yeah. do something really special in that. And, and why don't you tell everybody what that is? So I'm a trained uh, interviewer. I was on commercial radio here in Toronto for 10 years. And I did a show called Marty and Avram, the food guys. It was a really quirky show. A lot about our guests, who they are, who they were, where they came from, their behavior in life, the quirky things about them. A little less about food because Marty and I admittedly didn't know that much about it. By the end of the 10 years, we knew more. But we were fascinated by humankind. We were fascinated by human behavior. But unfortunately, when you're doing commercial radio, you do three-minute interviews. And I was very frustrated with that because I'm a very, very curious person. And I want to know a lot about people, so I ask a ton of questions, much to my son's chagrin very often, Um, (laughs) you know. But uh, I decided I'm going to go down a new road, and that new road is interviewing, and I launched Hat Radio, and essentially my interviews are an hour and a half, and they're they're really getting to the essence of who who that person is, my guest, with with a lot of focus on kindness and goodness. Do you feel like the people that you talk to who um, who seem to be living in their purpose, who seem to be living in their joy, all are at that spot because of some sort of kindness? Is there a common thread that goes through all those guests? Yeah, it's a really interesting question. I guess, I guess, I guess the, the jury will have to determine as a person you know, in their soul and in their spirit kind, and therefore they actualize it as such? Or do, do they do things in life 
that take them down that road and bring out the goodness in them. That's a really interesting thing to examine. What I do know is that there was an Israeli sociologist who asked about 350 righteous Gentiles, these are individuals who saved Jewish lives during the war, Holocaust, at the risk of their own family and the risk of their own lives. And, and she asked them, I forget her name, why they did it. And their answer was pretty much the same across the board. Their answer was because when we were growing up, our parents taught us that if we see someone sitting by the road, both metaphorically or otherwise, we should go over and ask per their welfare. And that's how I was raised. You know, my father would bring home individuals who many people would consider strays, you know, the stranger. And basically my mother would take care of them. And we had people living us with us for a month, for half a year, for a year, for two years, um, in very difficult circumstances. But that's what we did. So we were basically taught and trained early on that it was our obligation to recognize the individuals outside of us, that there is a world outside of us, and to do our very best to help them and to take care of them. And, you know, your original question was, what was rabbinical about your home? I would say that's what was rabbinical about it, the recognition that we live in a world and there are many, many strangers out there, people in need, you know, people are not as lucky as I am to have a community, and uh, we went out of our way to bring them into our community. Avram, I'm curious about whether that happened in your household. Okay, let me back up a second. I think people often don't do those things because they're fearful. And I'm wondering if that happened in your home and even um, via Havta, the, the, the organization you created in Toronto that helps people without homes and, and people um, facing issues like that. I'm wondering if that happened because of this deep layer of pain that both of your parents probably experienced with the Holocaust. I know your mom is uh, from Poland or that area. Right. So do you feel like there was less fear all around because they had in some way, shape or form experienced the worst. I, I think that's, you know, probably a component of it. I mean, the, being a Jew, we were raised on the Torah, which is a set of laws and a set of rituals with a focus towards kindness. They say the most important line in the Torah is the one should love their brother and their sister as they love themselves. Mm -hmm. And that was fundamental in our upbringing, civility, decency, kindness. But by the same token, we were also brought up on the Holocaust. And many, many of my friends, you know, saw gruesome movies and heard terrible stories at seven and eight years old. And that definitely played into who we are uh, then and who we are now. And, and I, yeah, I, I, I would say definitively to answer your question, you know, did my parents take in the stranger because they recognized themselves as being strangers as Jews? Yeah, for sure. And I would say that was both biblical from the Torah, from our Jewish studies, as well as from what happened on the ground in Nazi Germany and in Europe, um, that we truly were the strangers, and therefore six million people were killed, and I think that had a major impact on them, and yes, probably produced a lot of fear as well, 
Um, so they did respond to that. But I wouldn't say that was the only thing that they were, were responding to. They were responding to love. They were responding to a need, I think, to help. You know, the classic story in the Bible is that Abraham and Sarah used to stand at the opening of their tent to watch for strangers walking by who needed them. And I think that's a component of being Jewish. I think it's a component of being religious. It's the idea that I'm going to give of myself and share my resources. So it was a melange of things. It wasn't only one thing. It wasn't just fear. So can you open that up then for, for our world, for people who are listening who maybe are based in fear? How do you transition that into love so that you're willing to stand at the tent and say, how can I help you? Well, I think, firstly, you have to look at the reality of life. You know, the media, I think, does a really good job, and I think that translates into our schools and our leadership, of really scaring the crap out of us about so many different things. Amen. You know, like, I know, like you go on the news now, and, and if there's no news local, if there's no news in America, if there's no news on our continent uh, that is graphic or that is terrible, they'll tell us that a bus went over a cliff in the Congo. Now, I, 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 God bless those souls, but I don't need to know that. And, in fact, I don't think I'm built for it. Mm-hmm. I, I think, honestly, I think people have to shut down sometimes in terms of their view and their time spent on world news. Um, it's hugely important to be universal. But when I think of being universal, I think of universally good, you know, accepting the fact that there are really no real lines between us and somebody living in Uganda or somebody uh, living in Nicaragua. We're all humans. We're all humankind, a part of humankind. Many of us believe that we're creations of God. There's a classic concept in Greek called agape love, which is that I love you because you're a creation of God, because you're, you're human. And I think that if individuals really look closely at themselves and they examine their fears, and then they look at how realistic those fears are. Um, very often we can determine, you know, it's the fight or flight classic, you know, model. Very often we can determine that, at least in our society, I know here in Toronto, um, we're pretty safe and we're pretty lucky and we're pretty blessed and we have a lot of resources. And if we just get past our own personal fears by being introspective, we can turn that into real positive things. And one of those positive things is love. So if we just diminish our fears a little bit by working on it, we create a lot more space for love. Beautiful. So two things before I let you go. The first is um, I, I always ask people, what's the one question you want to make sure I ask? And yours was, why is the pursuit of meaning and purpose so important in life? And so I'm going to steal that question and, and ask you, whether you want to look at it in the big picture of everyone in life or whether in your life, why was or is the pursuit of meaning and purpose so important? Right. Um, you know, life is huge <laughs> and it's also very small. It's both. It's kind of the juxtaposition of those things. And you can get caught in the middle and become very lost. And sometimes that's predicated on the age that we're at. Sometimes it's predicated on our environment. But, I mean, let's face it, every single person who's listening to your podcast, and thank you for having me on it, <laughs> um, is, has been lost at some point, at least if they're, if they're introspective, at least if they're in wonderment of their existence. And, again, how can you not be? So I think that being said, we're very often we're coaxed into 
determining what then, what then is the proper path to go for us personally? And my conclusion is the one that gives us a sense of meaning and the one that gives us a sense of purpose. And I found out in my life that when I am, when I find that, that my life becomes clearer, very often it becomes brighter, it's illuminated. And I found that with other people too, that when they hit their stride, and I've seen this so many times, that when people are pursuing something in their life and they finally figure it out and they finally hit their stride and they start to fly, it's beautiful to watch because you see them blossom as human beings, you know? So if somebody is a poet, and for their entire lives they were told that poetry is nonsense and they shouldn't spend their time an iambic pentameter and all the things that go with poetry. And then finally you say, well, you know what? Screw that. I, I am who I am and it's up to me to build my life. It's up to nobody else. Obviously we get help and we're part of a community, as I said, but they become a poet and they start writing, you know, and in the beginning they're very sophomoric in nature, but as they go, they start to become more efficient in words and they start to develop beautiful metaphors and people read their stuff and they say, wow, this is really beautiful. All of a sudden, they have this sense of, wow, why do I exist? Maybe I exist to bring these words to the world and to make myself feel purposeful and to give that to others as well. I know I'm an artist, so, you know, when people see my art and they like it, you know, they sort of take a step back and they look at it and they go, wow, this, this really is illuminating. This is really nice. And for a moment there, it's almost like some sort of revelation is happening inside of them. I don't mean necessarily religious, but it's existential. So my answer to your question is, yeah, I think it's really important for me to find meaning and purpose. And I would argue that it's important for everybody else. You know, there's a type of psychology out there, which isn't really practiced, but it's called logotherapy. And logotherapy, the sense was that if you help a person find meaning and purpose in their lives, that they will get cured of their ills, of their neuroses. And I, 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 I think that's true. And I've seen it happen. Yeah, there's something to be said about that because when you find your your stride and purpose, I think so often it's it's directly connected with helping others, loving on others in some way, shape, so. or form. Mm -hmm. It's beautiful. Agreed. Yeah. All right, Avram, before I let you go, I said I had two things. So that was the first one. The second one is I'm wondering if you have a favorite story of kindness, whether it's from Vihavta or just another area of your life, whatever that you'd like to share with us today. Yes, I do. Thank you for asking that. I, um, I founded Vihavta, and if someone wants to know more about it, it's vihavta.org. That's V-E-A-H-A-V-T-A. And it was predicated on the idea that the Jewish people have a lot to offer the world and that uh, we need to, based on our commitment to never again, that we need to go out there and make the world a better place, regardless of who the person is who's in need, Jew or not Jew. Anyways, long and short of it, one of the things that we did was we launched uh, a, a band program. It was called the Mobile Jewish Response to the Homeless. And on a nightly basis, we would send people out into the street with her outreach worker to assist others, homeless people, people living on the street or near the street. And my outreach worker used to go down to City Hall, strangely enough, where people used to hang out, and they would come to our van, and they would take food from us and clothing, and sometimes eyeglasses, sometimes books, hot drinks or cold drinks, depending on the season. There was a fellow who stood way off, distant from the van, and my outreach worker saw him, 
and he noticed that he didn't come to the van for any help. Anyways, over time, this fellow came closer and closer and closer to the van, and ultimately he said to my outreach worker, I want to tell you something. I've been watching you guys for a long time, and I saw that you're a Jewish organization, and he says, I've always hated the Jews. I'm I'm actually a neo-Nazi, and and he showed my outreach worker a swastika on his arm, and he said, I want you to know something that I'm deeply sorry for what I've done to the Jewish people and others and how I felt about you because I can see that you're giving of yourself so asking not, nothing in return. And I live on the street and I see how people whom I live with are taking from you. And again, you're just simply there to give. He says, I want to show you something. So my average worker said, okay. And they both got into the van. I guess he was a little scared, but he got in the right. van. Yeah. And they drove down to the southern part of the city where there's a big bridge, the Gardner Expressway. And he says to him, okay, look up there. And he pointed up at the top of the bridge, like underneath it, where I think they're called girders are. And that's where he slept, this fellow. And there were painted swastikas all over the wall. Anyways, he went up there, he shook a can of paint, spray paint, and he spray painted over those swastikas. And he said to my outreach worker, I'm terribly sorry, for what I've done and for the pain that I've caused your people. And to me, that's very, very poignant because it speaks to the idea, you mentioned this before, it speaks to the idea that people can change. And even the worst, if you will, of individuals, you know, who've adopted like terrible ideologies, mm-hmm. that they can, they can change. And this person did. And that was a huge, huge piece for me because it meant that Viahafta was doing something by having a high Jewish profile, by giving of ourselves, by sharing. And it also meant that this person was taking a step forward and evolving, you know, from a place of really not so good to a place of goodness. So that, that I think, is a beautiful story, and I'm happy to share it with you. Thank you so much, Avram. You are a, a man of great wisdom, and it just is really fun to hear um, and insightful to hear you, you share your personal stories and this story as well from Via Hafta because, you know, one way or another, I think we share these stories and, and we can erase the hate with the kindness. It's pretty special. Yeah, and I want to thank you too. It was, uh, I asked you if, you if you would interview me and you said yes, and that's a really big deal to me. So, you know, we're forming community in that way. And I wish you lots of luck too in your pursuit because it's a very lofty one and I don't know you at all. <laughs> But you seem to be a very kind and soft and gentle person. So, you know, thank you for coming my way. I'm very, very grateful. Everyone would say I'm kind and soft and gentle, except people who really know me and my family. (laughs) Yeah, well, ain't that always the case. (laughs) Welcome home, you know. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Avram, thank you so much. This has been such a pleasure. That was a conversation with Avram Rosenzweig, founder of the Jewish humanitarian organization Via Havta. Learn more about the group's work at viahavta.org and listen to Avram's podcast at hatradio.ca. Thanks for listening to The Kindness Podcast. It's produced by WOUB Public Media and relies heavily on the kindness of engineer Adam Rich. I'm Nicole Phillips. We hope you'll subscribe to The Kindness Podcast wherever you listen and find us on social media at Kindness Podcast. If you like the show, please spread some kindness in the review section. 